0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events... The widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.
1: The race is on. And it will certainly feel like that for those burning the midnight oil to prepare their shiny new F1 cars for launches and pre-season testing. We're looking ahead to launch season and the major challenges of the season to come. Who's looking hot and who's not? And what can we expect from the new machines when they finally start to break cover? I'm Ed Straw, and my guest today will be the race's newest signing, race-winning F1 car designer Gary Anderson and my fellow F1 correspondent Scott Mitchell. So Gary... First podcast
2: for the race. Yes it's uh, it's great to be here doing it. Um, We're all about excited for the start of the season and you know Teston's just around the corner so it's uh, a lot of pressure on the team's right at the moment but uh, it's not far away and uh, Australia's quite important you know they've just got to get all that work done at testing first before they get to Australia so that they can pick up those results from the start of the season that's the important issue so the team's got a lot of hard work to do in the next month.
1: And I imagine it's probably a bit more relaxing for you doing this podcast whereas in your F1 technical director or other old days this would have been a bit of a frantic period of the year.
2: Yeah it is a frantic period I mean it's all it's all workshop based as such um, but you've got all the tests all the FIA tests all the crash tests to get through you've got to try and understand your car development's still continuing hard and fast but at some point in time you've got to sort of tick the box to get the parts made to get a car on four wheels uh, to get to the Barcelona test but in the background as I say you're still developing the same car because there's from the test starting in the middle of February to the to the middle of, of March. There's still a month there, so you can add a lot of time to the car if you get the right bits sorted out, but but still you've got to make a car and have it on four wheels for those tests because reliability comes from running, track running, just understanding the car, and you've got to get there, and you've got to get the miles in.
1: Well, it won't be long before the cars are out running and testing. We'll all be there, including Scott Mitchell. Are you looking forward to, to heading out for uh, testing in Spain, or are you focused on the... The launch, the launch week that we've got uh, got to come probably next week.
3: Well, launch week will be be quite fun, although because the the regulations are the same, not really the uh, the sort of surprises, I suppose, or or sort of innovations that you might spot. Um, so testing is testing is probably a bit more exciting this year. I won't be believing pretty much anything that Ferrari do or say at testing this year, especially after that It wasn't so much that everyone else got it wrong. They got it so badly wrong last year in terms of their own evaluation of how they were doing. So launches, launches is fun because the launch week is when it really feels like the the, the season's about to begin. Uh, but testing for me is the really interesting bit because you you can't... There's only so much you can gain from uh, from what a car looks like. Although if Mercedes do what they did last year with the launch, I think I remember you said at the time, Gary, that... Uh, we, we got a pretty good idea that Merck weren't messing around uh, when they did their shakedown last year. So, yeah, looking forward to it all getting underway.
1: Well, well first up, let's have a little bit of a, a talk about the challenges of this year. Because, Gary, this is kind of a... It's, it's almost a 2019 part two, isn't it? In that there's no significant rule changes. Obviously, we had the front wing changes last year and a few other details. But this is... It's very much a continuation, isn't it? Even the same tyres that the tyres the Pirelli had, had planned to bring in this year, uh, the, the the change specification got ditched uh, because the teams didn't get on with them. So, does that change things when you've got a situation that it's it it's a much more straightforward kind of step from one year to the next?
2: Well, it, it does change it because, as you say, it's sort of uh, 2019 part two or a continuity of 2019, and there's just been a big gap between the last the last race and the first race. But in reality, you know, going back to twenty nineteen, I'm a, I'm a little bit I was a little bit disappointed in some of the teams and you know Ferrari was one of them because we had this front wing controversy, I suppose, where the wings changed and then Ferrari built this wing with a lot of outwash, the so outside of the wing swept down to the outside of the tyre, front tyre, to allow the airflow around the outside of the front tyre to be more consistent. And Mercedes didn't. They went the other way, they created a downforce in the front wing. I, I'm sort of surprised that during 2019, we didn't see that converge more. We did, Mercedes did do quite a few bits and pieces. They did drop their outside of their wing a bit. But Ferrari never really did anything in that area to try to converge with Mercedes. So it'll be interesting to see, because that's a bit like a light switch. You know, While, while you've got continuity in the regulations from 2019 to 2020, why not get on with it and, and, and build up that uh, base knowledge of what these changes would do that's very, you know, the rest of the car obviously um, is very critical to how the airflow comes off the front wing. So, you may have to change a lot of parts to make it work with the front wing changes. However, you know, Ferrari have never struggled for a budget or or ambition to do something. So, from my point of view, the teams that didn't try to fix their problem um, near the end of the season probably, you know, are, will 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 suffer for it this year because they're they're sort of a potentially it could be a step ahead but actually they're a step behind now so it'll be interesting to see what these new cars look like who, do, who does push harder for, uh, for the change in that area because as I say the front wing dictates the airflow to everything down the car so it's the first thing you sort of, it's the first part of the concept that you sort of come up with and then you make the rest of the car work around it so it'll be interesting to see that first test going to be important visually. That front
1: wing question is interesting because some teams, Renault for example, struggled to get anything out of the barge boards because they hadn't really got the, the front wing set up right. So they, they could be set up for big big change. But it's interesting Scott because you said on, on last week's podcast that, uh, that Benotto had suggested they'd stick with the sort of same front wing concept. I guess within that there is room for them to go a little bit more loaded in the outboard if they want to and still have that effect. But that does seem to be the most interesting thing for me with the new cars it's it's who does look like a continuation and who make makes a big shift So, who, who are the front runners are, are you most interested to see in terms of answering some of those questions
3: well i want to see exactly what ferrari comes up with because it's it seems a i know that there's lots that you can do but it does seem to be a little bit contradictory for them to be prioritizing finding ways to have more efficient and more a more efficient car but but greater peak downforce than they had last year but also they don't seem to want to veer away from the concept that they had last year so i'm i'm sure there there must there must exist some compromise between the two but it just feels a little bit like sort of ferrari pretty much saying one thing and then potentially doing the other so i'm curious to see exactly what what they come up with um one thing that we won't see which will be under the covers will be what they've talked about with overhauling some of the some of the cylinder technology that they're that they're employing on the engine obviously we won't necessarily see that but it's just it's just going to be curious to see exactly how much visibly has changed on the Ferrari and then also maybe if Mercedes is reacting to anything because the progress that Red Bull made over the course of 2019 they were one of the they they were probably the the worst affected by that that front wing rule change and the way they were manipulating the airflow from the front wing before that was obviously at a very high level and they just didn't get it right last year but they made good progress over the course of of 2019 they seem to really get it right so red bull in theory if i don't know if we can say they ended last year with the, the the best car or the best aero but in theory they're really well placed to just evolve into this year ferrari pretty evidently needed to make progress mercedes i don 't know they 're not exactly the type to rest on their laurels, are they Gary
2: no they 're not, and I agree a hundred percent with what you 're saying there you know that that 's that 's really what I was saying earlier. Red Bull did react to the situation they had last year, they did put other parts in the car, they did recognize their problem, and they did rectify it, and they probably ended the season you know as the strongest of those top three teams, so if they can continue that that curve uh, into twenty twenty then they 'll start the season very strong, and that 's what Red Bull have got to do because They've thrown away quite a few potential championships by not starting strong enough at the beginning of the season. You know, you've got to get the points on the board because that changes the pressure that will be on the other teams. That changes the pressure that will be on Mercedes. If suddenly somebody's nipping at your heels or even a couple of points in front of you, it's a whole different deal to go on into race, you know, race four or five of the season, and you got a 20, 25, 30-point lead in the championship, That's the pressure's different from if you're one or two points apart. So if Red Bull can, can continue their curve of, of development into the beginning of 2020, the interesting thing for me is I don't live far away from the Red Bull factory. And twice in the last two weeks I've driven past their factory. One was on a Sunday, um, and there was not one car in the car park. This is about two weeks ago. And last week, I drove past it on a Saturday, and there was about 10 cars in the car park. So, you know, if you could pass there during, during a normal working day, there isn't room to park in the car park or the street or anywhere near their factory. But yet, on a Saturday afternoon and on a Sunday, as I say, Sunday, there was nobody there at all and 10 cars. So they, they must be pretty confident in what they're doing, or they're not pushing as hard as they should do, because I've never worked on an F1 team. Or this time of year you weren't in there with most of your staff on a Saturday on a Sunday. But yeah, so if Red Bull can continue to curve, good, start the season strong, that's very, very important. And I say Ferrari sort of threw away an opportunity at the end of last season by not trying to, to get better in the area. They say, OK, we had a low-concept car and we need a low-drag-concept car. Um, and we need to, to change the concept to increase the downforce levels. But you know, you need those downforce levels to get the Pirelli tyres to work. So downforce is critically important at the moment with the tyres that we have as well. So Ferrari have a lot of work to do, I think.
1: I think with Red Bull, I'll almost be happiest if I see a car that doesn't have anything on it that makes you go, oh wow, that's a massive change. Because it's so important they just start the season well with something that they understand and can build from. They got to a good position last year, but it wasn't until Austria last year that they really got on top of the, the front wing. They had a series of upgrades over the races up to and including Austria. And then that sort of started to switch the car. And then once into the second half of the season, they were a bit more consistently uh, strong as well. So for those of us, and everyone, just we want as many title contenders as we can do. But I'm getting a little bit frustrated with every year, Red Bull sort of starting a bit iffy, sort of either starting anywhere between sort of okay and a bit iffy and then getting good. And you get to the end of the season, everyone goes, oh, brilliant yeah Red Bull's on a great trajectory and then they spend five races fiddling around so if they can hit the ground running chances are it will be with a with a good step and if you're Ferrari you're you're worried because it's no there's no foregone conclusion that you will be the 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 nearest challenger to to Mercedes because we know Mercedes is going to come out with a strong car
3: I'm a little bit worried that that Ferrari are going to in a period where stability seems to be everything last year of the this end this um this aero regulation uh they're gonna they're gonna change too much i'm not saying it's going to be quite as aggressive but i remember when mclaren ended was it 2012 with the, the the fastest car and won the final race of the season they looked really good and they made loads of changes for 2013 because they thought that's the only way to really get on terms with red bull and when backwards it was the start of the the decline that they're only just now now trying to reverse so I think Ferrari yeah there was a lot that needed to change it's just whether or not they've changed the right things and 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 in the right way with with Red Bull that momentum at the start of the season I remember speaking to Christian Horner at the end of last year about this and he was uh he he was trying to sort of dodge the accusation that they are they are traditionally slow starters in, in recent years. But the, the argument he put forward was that this year, the aero change caught them out, hold their hands up at that. And was it in 2017, I think they started the year and it took them a while to realise that they had some kind of miscorrelation with the wind tunnel. I think where the, the size of the car increased for 2017 and I don't think Red Bull properly accommodated for that. Uh, with their wind tunnel work, so that put them that set them back at the start of 17, and then in 2018 when they actually started the season stable aero regs from 17 to 18, and they thought we've actually got a really good car here, really good platform, they turn up for pre-season testing and the start of the year, and the Renault engines not not up to it compared to to, to their rivals. So, that yeah, there always just seems to be this whether you call it an excuse or just a reason that they're not quite at the races, are they? And they need to do something this year that they haven't done in the V6 turbo hybrid era, which is go to Australia and, and be in contention to win.
1: This also is a year where you don't want to be playing catch-up, is it? Because there's new major rule changes for, for 2021. I mean, Gary, you've been in a position where you've been working on one car and then you have a big rule change for the for the following year, varying, um, perhaps never anything quite as massive as the 21 changes. They're quite significant, but obviously in your time, plenty of plenty of big changes. So how if you're a technical director in a team how difficult it is to balance those things up and especially if you bring in because ideally you start the season strongly everything works really nicely you build up all the points you need early on you can basically transition a greater percentage of the resources onto next year's job done there's only going to be a few teams here in that position and everyone else will be varying levels of, uh, of of okay to to struggling so how do you go about concentrating on one season when you're also thinking about next year and creating those uh, those clever cockpit sides like you did in 96. You and Adrian Newey were the only ones,
2: I think, Yeah. Oh, I mean, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult to do both because you have to be big enough to sort of separate the team. I, I don't I, I don't think that any team has the luxury of enough staff, the way they operate, I don't think any team, team has a luxury of enough staff to sort of divide them up too early. You know, I know Mercedes and Ferrari and Red Bull have got huge staff numbers and, you know, they may start up back into sort of Williams and and uh, racing point and so on. They've got less staff numbers, but they're, you know, the ambition is the same and the way they work is the same. They use the maximum amount maximum people to do the job they're doing. Everybody always has a few people that we're working on future projects and obviously 2021 becomes a future project. But I think you, you I don't think you can switch off this year because the money is so big for that one place in the constructors' championship that you have to try and achieve it. For any team's budget, that one place is a is a fairly major part of it. So it's a circle of events. You have to start the season, as you say, strong, and you have to make sure that you get momentum right through the season in 2020 to try and get that you know those those extra few points if you can. Um, but the new regulations, because as you say, they are so different, it's a whole different mindset for it, really, to be honest. So you're going to have to put a group, another group of people in place, and that's why the teams have been talking about the, the amount of money it costs. It's not just the it's not just the hardware that we see; it's the background behind it—the amount that costs. So, getting those people is very, very difficult. Um, you know, it's just—it's just management of of your resources, I suppose, in the best way possible. But I think for any team, they've just got to buckle down, and they've got to look at 2020 being the challenge that's in front of them right now. 2021 becomes a different challenge, but probably other than ticking along with a, you know, your your forward thinking. Um, research group you're probably really fire the ball up come June or July uh, hard because the 2021 regulations are so different that you're going to see huge changes during 2021 so you just again it's the same old deal you've got to get the best package you can put together for pre-season testing in 2021 and that'll be x whatever it be and there'll be changes going on to it anyway so I wouldn't I wouldn't get super excited about 2021 now I'd make sure that 2020 was as productive as possible.
1: It's always interesting looking at some of the case studies in the past. The One extreme is obviously the Brawn year in 2009. Honda basically put pretty much all of their R&D budget for the 2008 car into the 2009 car. So everyone always says, well, do you completely write off a year? But I think, as you said there, you can't do that. But it, it is interesting looking at some of the previous cases, because, f- for example, remember in 2013, obviously big changes for 2014. And Red Bull obviously demolished the second half of the season in particular. I mean, they were strong all the way through. But I remember a few people in Mercedes saying that they were quite happy to see Red Bull was still firing parts at the car to make sure they won whatever it was ridiculous number of races in the row, in a row that Sebastian Vettel won because it wasn't actually doing a great deal for Red Bull because they were going to win the championship mm-hmm. anyway. And I almost felt it suggested that they were they were focusing almost too much on the previous year. So there's that, that sort of fine balance, isn't it? I always feel that you, your, your ideal position is if you start strong, mm-hmm. that gives you control over your destiny doesn't it because that theoretically you should then secure a good position in the championship quite early on and then because you've got a little bit of credit in the bank over some of your competitors you think well we can we can maybe leave a couple of tents on the shelf development because we don't need it whereas if you're playing catch-up and you think, oh we're in a tight battle we want to finish fifth in the constructors rather than seventh then that question becomes much trickier
2: yeah, I mean, I think you're right. If you've got a big enough cushion, but I, I don't see it that way. As I say, this is the second year of these regulations. I don't see why the, the, you know between those top three teams, there would be a big cushion uh, enough to sort of give up a you know a few races because of that. And even from there backwards, from from fourth backwards, you know, all those teams or those fourth, fifth, and sixth are really. Pushing hard to try and close the gap down, but they're also trying to push hard to to stay fourth. So there's there's two races within one race, you know, and you're always out trying to win it, and that that race for fourth is just as hard, if not harder, than the race for first. So I, I think you know, I think you're going to see the teams pushing on, and I think t- you got to say that if it was me, I'd be saying let let's, let's let two, two thousand twenty one um, look after itself. I suppose you might say, you know, manage it well enough and, and do enough research as you can but the way the regulations are written now it's so for 2021 it's it's so definitive you know there's everything is placed in sort of space somewhere so it's about drawing the car up and then looking at all those opportunities and to be honest there's not that many that's what we're trying to do is cut back the opportunities so actually a 2021 car could be easier than a 2020 car
1: that's a that's a very good point uh, one thing while we're talking about the top teams we should do scott is maybe We've mentioned Mercedes in passing a few times here. We've got so used to Mercedes being the being the yardstick that it almost is taken as red, isn't it? So what are you expecting to see from, from them? We don't normally see vast, dramatic concept changes in terms of everyone a few years ago saying, oh, we're going to go to high rake, everyone's going high rake. But Mercedes has such a great understanding of how to make its car work and build on its car concept to make sure it's most competitive across the average of the season is there any reason to expect anything particularly different from them
3: well the the way of going about things has worked pretty well over the last six seasons hasn't it so i can imagine that they'll probably aim to just do the usual bit which is basically just do everything to a really really high level i think we talked about this i think it was on the last podcast that they're not perfect as a race team with car design engine design they're not perfect but they do such a good job that they look like they're perfect always, and they'll they'll go out, they'll do a shakedown at at Silverstone when they launch the car, and they'll complete as many laps as is allowed in a filming day, and there'll be a video that comes out where Lewis is driving the car and he says, "Oh my god, this thing feels incredible." And then they'll go to Barcelona and they'll probably smash in as many laps over six days as they did in eight days last year or something. They'll, they'll I I would be surprised if they did anything other than lay down the gauntlet at least in terms of productivity and efficiency we're not re- we-, we saw last year what they do performance wise at the start isn't really what's what's relevant but I can just see them going through and all the teams are going to go there with their, their to-do list and I think Mercedes is just going to be the one that that checks everything off better than than the rest.
1: Gary obviously you've been through plenty of areas where there's been one team dominating obviously perhaps Almost, well, it is unprecedented six back to back titles. We have seen, obviously, Ferrari managed six and five titles in, a, in a, but what's it. But what's it like when you're up against a team like that? Are you like some of, the, some of the fans at home just getting bored of it happening? Or do you just think, oh, God, these people are so good. How are we going to get to that level? How, how do you see a, how will the other teams be feeling about what Mercedes is doing?
2: Well, you've always got your challenge. No matter what team you are, you've always got a team that's you know, it's close to you that you, your challenge is to beat them. Um, and on you know cases of let's say you know McLaren backwards Renault Haas for, uh, Racing Point or whatever, their challenge is not is not Mercedes and it's not Red Bull and it's not the uh, Ferrari, but you know within those three themselves their challenge is to beat each other. So you've always got your challenge. If, if somebody like Toro Rosso you know think or whatever they call themselves Alpha Alpha Alfa Alpha yeah Alfa quite Tori. A clothing clothing brand um, Alpha Tauri yeah I don't have any of those clothes. Oh, um, um, your fashion sense—that's that's <laughs> unbelievable, guy! Uh, you know, if, you know, if AlphaTauri has an ambition to catch Mercedes, then you know they're going to be disappointed for the rest of their life. So you can't set yourself there; you have to set yourself at the next step. And that's why I say it's climbing this ladder—you know, you take each step at a time. You got to you got to move forward, or otherwise you just destroy your motivation. So you always look at what's around you and how you, why you're getting beaten by them, or or why you're beating somebody else, and try and improve yourself that little bit. So much of it relies on other people, what they do as well, coming into a new season. Because you know somebody could get it right. You know, there's no reason why Racing Point might, you know, be lucky. Yes, it would have to be lucky, but to be competitive with uh, with somebody else, with with up, up the front, and suddenly they're you know they're running for third in the championship. Um, that could happen. It's very unlikely, but it could happen. But it would be it would be because of luck. So you know you wouldn't expect it to continue. It would just be a happening because they got some some stuff right and. Uh, but you've only got to set your, your goal at beating the guy ahead of you, no matter whether that's for fourth or fifth or third or first. No matter what that is, you've got to try and get that guy ahead of you and then you can look at the next one.
3: When, when Gary, do you think these teams will be getting an idea of how close they are to achieving that goal? So Ferrari, for example, there's all sorts of rumours coming out of Italy, as there always are, over the last two or three weeks, that they're not where they need to be, that the the, the, the work they're doing behind the scenes isn't, currently yielding positive results so there's doubt as to whether they're going to have the downforce they need to improve the car as much as they they want to is that that i i struggle to take that too seriously because i know what italy's like for this sort of thing especially when it comes to to ferrari but how is it realistic to to for them to have an idea of how good they think their car's going to be, or is it still guesswork until you get to testing or even Australia?
2: No, what is realistic? I mean, I, I would say that if I was Ferrari, I would be playing it down a bit going into twenty twenty as well, because obviously, last year twenty nineteen, from the initial testing and from them, you know, they were going to conquer the world. We all thought they were going to. So the the, the right thing to do is play it down a little bit this year. The biggest um, the biggest problem, I suppose, for them is. You know, it's only how good your simulation tools are. Whenever you think, you know, you're running this stuff in CFD, you're running it in the wind tunnel, you're going to go to a track in Barcelona testing, which is, you know, average temperature during the day is probably going to be in the teens, maybe high teens. Um, And it's been cold all winter. So the track surfaces, the track, the mass of the track is cool. The aerodynamic characteristics change from there to sort of a circuit like Bahrain or those early warm circuits is massive, you know, the humidity, the, the surface temperatures, the ambient temperatures, all of that stuff changes how the aerodynamics work. So you've got to be very, very careful that your you know, your simulation that you're doing right now, back in the factory, is relative to last year's car and you're getting numbers of an improvement or or not, as the case may be. Obviously Ferrari, you know, they needed to find, you know, two or three, four percent more downforce from their car. They want to find it as efficient, so they want the drag level to be the same. So those are the numbers that they're working with, with their simulation tool. If they can get that, then from the factory point of view, you'd be saying, yeah, okay, we're on our way forward. All right, that's okay. Except for if you're working an aerodynamic surface, just that bit harder to get that extra downforce. When you get to hotter hotter conditions, that aerodynamic surface can just fail. It can stall. So although your figures that you have from factory simulation can lead you in a direction, there is no substitute for actually running on the track and and letting the stopwatch tell you the truth.
1: Well, we talked quite a bit about the the front runners, so uh, we'll move on to the mid-pack in a moment. Uh, We'll talk about some of those teams after this. Right, well, there are seven other teams in Formula One who will be... uh, you could cruelly say making up the numbers, but creating the other storylines uh, as well as the uh, aside from the the battle for the for the championship, loads of interesting teams there. But I thought I'd uh, I'd ask everyone to pick one team that they're particularly interested to to see how they do and what their cars like. So, Scott, which of those uh, those other seven teams are you most interested to see what they can do and what and, and what their cars like?
3: I am going to pick Renault because I think they're the team with I think the team with the most on the line. From from this season, I think it makes or breaks whether Renault is still in F one basically beyond beyond twenty twenty. Maybe, maybe they'll maybe they'll they'll still see out twenty twenty one. But I think if if they make, if they go backwards or even stay the same this year, it's a it's going to be a massive massive problem. It's It's going to be interesting to see the car because they had such an obvious problem last year with the the development in particular because they they started off and it, things weren't special but the things weren't too bad but it's just everything they promised it was just oh that's not delivered that's not delivered and you know ricard Daniel Ricardo and Hulk, Nico Hulkenberg said several times last year every time they thought they were going to build a bit of momentum then they have a really bad result and it's it's not a it's not a great sign when the Renault works team's strongest results last year came at tracks where it was sort of top speed dependent it's not a very good indicator of the quality of the car that they had um, so be interesting to see if there's anything visibly different on the cart, as you can sort of spot some early trends as to how they've addressed it but then sort of bigger picture as well because they've got this um you've got they've got pat Fry's come up come over he's um is he, he was um he was, a, um he was a team endstone man uh a long time ago wasn't he pat yeah, Fry? so it's sort, sort of a homecoming of of sorts but it's uh he he's gonna have a big big job on his hands you've got um just just the way they go about the the aero side this year is going to be going to be crucial for them with with dirt to beer coming coming across as well it's a different it's a different technical team now on on the the car side the aero side so how they develop and so what they put forward initially how they develop it and then what signs we see of their attention maybe switching to 2021 because if they if they're sticking around beyond 2020 it has to be to get twenty one right so for for all sorts of reasons I think Renault is my I'm, I'm quite interested to see how it plays out in the midfield for them yeah
1: Renault is certainly the one that i'm particularly interested to see that car because there's there's good scope for uh, aerodynamic concept changes there particularly with the with the front end gary is there a team that uh, that you're clamoring to
2: see um well you know just topping up that little bit on Renault there yeah i mean the pressure's on them for sure you know they should be easily the dominant fourth team if not joining that top three they are a works team so they've really in the last uh, few years they've really got it wrong I suppose you might call it and they need to step forward but from my point of view I think again the momentum um, of McLaren would be something that I would hope would close that gap up to the top three I'm not saying they can join the top three just yet but I'm saying that the momentum's there you know both Lando Norris and, and Saints Junior did a really really strong job last year, and, and they did it, you know and they brought a smile back to McLaren's face. Which that smile on the face is a lot of momentum in that. You know, it really does help you through the through the winter season whenever you've got you know that that belief in where you were going to and how you're doing. It. And they've got some new staff, got new technical director, new um, team principal. You know, but the staff that's there before they came did a very very good job for 2019. So. I can see that momentum keeping going. Um, the, the the problem, I suppose, for them is if, if they do change direction a bit with their car concept to try and get more downforce out of it, which is their stated sort of ploy, um, then you can lose yourself just as quickly as as, as gain, yourself, gain ground. Um, but I think McLaren have got a firm handle on it, and I think because of the troubles they've had over the last few years, they've been able to look at it quite deeply. So they're, they're the ones that I think I would hope to see close that gap down on and do a strong job, and we all want them to. we need four teams at the front, for sure, fighting. You know, three's good, but four would be much better.
1: On the subject of that concept change, it was talked about a lot last year. I, mean, I asked James Key about that late in the in the season. James Key, of course, yeah. you taught him everything he knows, didn't you, <laughs> from, from a colleague of yours? <laughs> no, a good guy. Um, and And he said, it's perhaps best not to think of it as like a whole car changing concept, but he said it was about there are some areas where they know there's big performance gains but they've not really got into, and this this is all about that that huge chasm between the the top three teams and the rest. There is kind of a glass ceiling there in terms of understanding what I like to call the underlying science, and I think that's that's what McLaren are really trying to get into areas where they can really start understanding the advanced trickery, for want of a better word. It's all legal, but that the, the top teams do. This is something you've spoken about, Gary, when it comes to the uh, the the impact of the, the steering lock and the dive at the front and the braking and, and you know, controlling yeah, yeah, the aero yeah. pressure, that's hugely, hugely complex, isn't it? And that's, that's clearly one of those areas of understanding that you've got to, you know, you need to spend years working on it and I think that that will be one of the areas McLaren will be trying to at least lay the foundations for a step change in.
2: The, the driver gets confidence in his car, but, you know, during the transient stage of going into a corner, he arrives going down the street and going down the street he doesn't care what the car's doing, he just wants it to be going quickly. So drag's important. Then you hit the brake pedal. And from that point in time until you get the throttle flat out, everything, every state's transient. You're putting a different steering lock on. The car's rolling. It's yawing. Um, everything's happening. You're reducing speed. You're gaining speed. So all that stuff through that corner is what gives the driver confidence. And if if any of that is peaky and you know not consistent, then that's where you get problems. And it's so difficult to get all that stuff leveled out because every corner profile is such when you hit the brake pedal to you do you get full throttle again? It's always a different type of corner. You know, it might be 90 degrees, it might be 180 degrees, it could be you know, 70 degrees, but it could be also 110 kilometres an hour, it could be 220 kilometres an hour. You know, very, very varying. And um, you know, that's, the, that's the area you have to concentrate on. Now, to do that all in the wind tunnel, and the wind tunnel time that you're now allowed, is quite difficult. In the past, when you could run the wind tunnel from, from break of dawn to, to night time, you know, or 24 hours a day, um, you more, than, used, more than one in some cases. More than one. You used to be able to go through all those scenarios and, and try to get the car that you know, covered everything and trying to get the information that covered everything. So you knew every point of downforce through a, a car's transient condition. Now you can't do that. So a, a lot of the teams are being led astray by saving this money because they're not running the wind tunnel because they just can't spend the time in making sure the parts that they're putting on the cars actually... Are 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 working properly. Yeah, they're working properly as far as given down for at some points in time, but not all the time.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh it's hugely complicated, isn't it? Yeah. That, you know, this is really, really difficult stuff and it, it takes time and that's I'm quite encouraged to see McLaren quite happy to talk about kind of a gap in their knowledge and where they need to, to work at this. So I, I think Scott earlier referenced that twenty thirteen car concept change. I think this is a slightly different situation there is always the risk if you do that you're you're doing something for no reason and that 2012 car it could, it, better operation better reliability that car probably should have won the championship it, it's it's kind of the forgotten last great mclaren uh, if you like but i've I've digressed a bit there i'm going to choose a team and i'm going to choose your old team gary racing point which obviously started as jordan you you were there when it was just a an empty industrial unit at silverstone and of course we should say that that team will become aston martin racing in 2021 Uh, so for more on that check out our special extra episode of this podcast where we discuss that in depth Last year, I think of as a a year zero for Racing Point. They had the 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 investment that came in in twenty eighteen was too late to fully impact last season. So they had to do things like they took the the, they carried on with the same uh, same gearbox and rear suspension, etc. Because they just had to make their decisions when they didn't fully know the the picture of of resources. Andrew Green, the technical director, he was there at the start of Jordan as well. You know, fantastic technical director, Andrew Green really knows his stuff. Uh, someone really worth listening to when he talks. I mean, he said that it's basically this is an all-new car. It's, it's a, This is the blank sheet of paper first racing point. So I'm, I'm really interested to see what they could do. Because, again, if you look at it last year, that car wasn't brilliant, but they operationally they executed it so well. On average, it was the ninth fastest car, yet you had Sergio Perez, if you, if you do the Class B points by eliminating the top three, as we like to do, he was second in the championship because they just executed really well. That team... You know, pound for pound, it's it's a it's a very good team, and you could probably only say that maybe you know it's up there with sort of Red Bull and Mercedes in terms of the execution of of races. But I'm really interested to see how much the car changes, and it's also I'm interested to see that from a for better or for worse perspective, because obviously as you've talked about in the past, Gary, expanding teams is not an easy thing, and it, there's a lot of distractions potentially there. So. Want well, to hope that they've made a good, sensible step, not an excessive step, but focusing on the right areas a bit like McLaren, trying to advance their underlying understanding to put them thoroughly in the in the hunt for that best of the midfield because you can bet that that Lawrence Stroll, who heads the consortium who owns it, wants that team to be in there for best of the rest this season as a waypoint towards getting to fight at the front in a few years,
2: yeah, for sure he does i mean it's very difficult. For sure, four, uh, point one, force India, yeah, point one, uh, racing point, sorry, are just call it Midland or Spiker <laughs> or no, been all few, these other names. There's lines. a few names there, so if we get it nearly right, it's okay. Um, they're a very good race team, you know, they do understand about racing. And they, so the when it comes to Friday morning at a racetrack, they usually work very hard on getting the best out of what they got, and they know what they got. You know, and it's sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. But they get the best out of what they can, and that's vitally important. It's not where you are up and down the grid, or up and down the performance stakes. You have just got to get the best out of what you have. Um, but what, you know, this for me the big worry would be right at the moment is that the you know the dreams might be a little bit too too far away. They might just need to sort of regroup a little bit and make sure that they do what they do well consistently with the group of people they have, and any new. Big investment has to, be, has to be with new people coming in. you know, just don't upset what you 've got for the future because it doesn't happen overnight, and you know I'm sure people want results for sure they want results for sure they want to be ahead of that midfield at least. Um, but it 's so difficult you know you just got to make sure you do what you do well and do it consistently and, and recent point need to do that don't get to, you know, into dreamland too quickly because you 've got a big sponsor or you've got a big owner who can dip deep, deep in his pockets. So that's all okay. That's, that's for the future. But let some other people look after the future a little bit. And make sure your technical group and your, the way of doing stuff doesn't get destroyed by diluting it too much with too big many plans for the, for the future.
1: Well, that's a few of the midfield teams we talked about. We'll, uh, we'll be back in a moment to take some of the listener questions, some of which do cover some of the other teams. But we've had great response to people getting in touch with us to, to pose some questions. So we'll be back with that after this. Well, there's been a great uh, response to to our, our new podcast. We've had loads of questions from listeners to our accounts on Twitter, which is at WeAreTheRace. So we'll we'll try and pick through some of them now. Sadly not we'd have to have a, a five hour podcast to get through all of them, so apologies if we don't we don't get to your question. But there's a question here from Phil McQuilliam. Assuming Williams don't repeat their disaster of a season last year, who do you think is like to be languishing at the back of the grid this year?
2: I mean uh, that's a difficult one, obviously. I mean Williams I've been honest as- Bit of a downhill slope since 2016, really. I suppose you might call it. So they, it was a, a, a continual build-up, 2016 to 19. know that's four seasons. Really, it took them to hit the, the real doldrums. So it's not going to happen overnight that they end up in that middle of that midfield bunch. Um, in in uh, George Russell, they have, you know, in my opinion, a very very good driver. So if you give him the tools, he'll do the job. Um, the one team that I don't see really. Uh, moving forward is is alpha romeo I suppose i 'm not sure why they should move forward um because they 've got Kimmy and, you know obviously he 's very good, but he 's you know he 's getting a little bit long on the tooth, but as a team, they seem to be sort of stuck out on this little independent thing they you know they're they 're stuck in switzerland they 're away from everything else they're they 're not you know sort of connected up to the what we classify as a sort of Formula One world, which is the u k they 're just sort of detached away from the the central um motor racing world I suppose and they've stuck with that they've stuck with that themselves and, and okay they're, they're backed by Ferrari now and they got Ferrari bits on the car potentially got Ferrari bits on the car and they got Kimi Raikkonen, but I don't see why they should move forward because as a team they've been sour, they've been, sober, they've been round, the, round the block a few times and I don't see that moving forward Williams move, could move forward because they're determined they are committed they understand they did things wrong but I don't think that Alfa Romeo know that they did things wrong they haven't really got anything to blame Williams have a lot to blame, so I would say Alfa Romeo would be the team for me that would be the most consistent at the back, hopefully they'll not be as detached as what uh, Williams were, as you say, in 2019 but racing at the back and mixing it with the rest of the bunch, so um, that's a really critical area, that I've been there down the back, and it's tough it's really, really tough to to, get the best out of your car on a given weekend, and try to keep the momentum up within the team, because the head goes down very, very quickly so um, Whoever's stuck there, it's going to be difficult for them.
1: At least they've not got a Yamaha engine. Nobody's dealing with that.
2: As it was called a few times, a ship's anchor.
1: <laughs> I also remember you saying that the upgrades on it tend to make it louder but not faster.
2: Yeah, well, um, uh, Stefan, the model, he used to be quite good. He said, whenever you're driving with a car, everything feels great. You know, the, the engine's singing. But it's like a sewing machine," he said. "It's all making lots of noise and going very, very quickly. The engine, but you—it just feels like if you put your finger on it, it'll stop." He said "It's got no, no torque. It's got no, you know, no, no strength. Just lots and lots of noise around you." <laughs> that was until it blew up, usually. <laughs> yeah, well, and
1: that's a lot of noise. Bit of a bit of a struggle of a season. Well, Scott Barnard Starr asks, "How realistic do you think an Alonso return in a competitive car is in 2021?" So, kind of a two-part question there.
3: Oh, that's a good one. I quite like that. Thanks for throwing that to me. Uh, I suspect it's about as realistic as Vettel walking away from Ferrari at the end of this year. I think it's possible it hinges on other factors. I think in Alonso's case, it might well depend on uh, on what Vettel does. I think his preference would obviously be to, to take Hamilton's seat at, at Mercedes. Um, so maybe... Uh, I don't know some hypothetical scenarios maybe Vettel decides to leave Um, Ferrari convinces Hamilton to move over and then Merck can can sign Alonso but that seems it's a bit of a stretch I just think he says that he's ready and willing to come back to F1 he says he's pushing for it as as much as he can be Um, but I just think he he's only going to come back if there's a race winning car available I think, unless there's a way that Mercedes can get Verstappen out of his Red Bull contract, I can't. Maybe maybe Alonso would represent the only available top line driver that Mercedes could get if Hamilton left. Because you're not going to put if you're Mercedes and you stay in F one, you're not going to have a Bottas George Russell lineup, are you? I don't think that's really going to cut it in 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 a, in a title context. So. Maybe Alonso's best chance is Hamilton leaves Mercedes and and there's a vacancy there, but I've I would I struggle to see it personally, but never say never.
1: Yeah, it's going to be difficult. I mean, I think he was always. I think if there was a competitive car there for him, he would never have left. And as soon as a competitive car becomes available, he'll be back. But is a competitive car ever going to be available to him? Is a, is a much much bigger question. Uh, I mean, there's quite a few questions here. We've we've already we've already touched on uh, during the. Uh, during the podcast, uh, so um, I don't want to sort of go over uh, overall ground. Ian Hamilton, for example, asked about McLaren's expectations. Um, so various questions there, but there's there's also one about drivers. Gary saying, how important will the intra-team battle between Esteban Ocon and Daniel Ricciardo be for their careers? This is from Rasmus Vestergaard. Obviously, Ocon's an ambitious young driver, Daniel Ricardo in the in the middle of his career, in the prime of his F1 career, but very much desperate to get at least a shot at having a, a title push. Now you know a lot about driver dynamics and young drivers in particular. You've uh, a lot of time in your career. You uh, you had younger drivers uh, trying to make their names. So how important that is that battle going to be for those two, and how tricky could it be for Renault to 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 manage and get the best out of them?
2: I think, you know you just cross reference it to Charles Leclerc and and Vettel at Ferrari. Um, you can't keep young guys down. You know? If you've got a talent, you're going to come in and you're going to use it to the best possible. And the most important thing is that you you get compared to your teammates. So you've got to beat your teammate. And that's um, Ocon's challenge. Everybody knows, I think, that uh, if you give Daniel Ricciardo a car that's capable, he, he can win races. He has won races in a car that's capable. So... He is a good yardstick for Ocon, so those two will be have their own battle. Where that takes him in the, in the big picture of Formula One in general, uh, it, it, in, re, in re, reality, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to, to Ocon, he just needs to beat his teammate and do as solid a job as possible for the team, as Leclerc just needs to beat um, Sebastian Vettel, or as Hamilton just needs to beat Bottas, or Bottas beat Hamilton. If you can do that consistently, that's, that's your, that's what you get recognised as, so Challenge is just within the team. Do the best job possible. Keep your head down. Work for the team. Uh, make sure you don't let your ego get ahead of uh, ahead of what the team want. That's what happens a lot of times. Whenever you see people um, like Perez and Ocon at, uh, at Racing Point, as it was at that point in time, driving into each other. You know that's whenever the one's ego gets a bit bigger than the others, are uh, than the team. And um, you need to sort of trim that and make sure you keep it under control. Ocon needs to do that. Don't go and drive into the side of Danny Ricciardo because he'll take that bad boy image with him that he had at the uh, Fort a bit. So um keep your nose clean, go and beat your teammate and then you'll you'll move forward.
1: And if the driver step out of line you can always use the patented Gary Anderson, have him up against the wall of the garage.
2: Yeah, not so many people do that these days, you know. Uh I I don't see why you shouldn't settle things quickly and easily by just pinning the driver against the wall by the by his throat. But um you know, it'd be nice to see that sort of stuff again, but I think people might look at it as a bit a bit oddball. <laughs> the driver in question was Andrea De Cesaris, wasn't it? A driver
1: he you speak very highly of. Obviously,
2: on yeah. that day he was causing Andrea was was a great guy, but he he said some stuff that you you know he probably didn't need to say. I'll well, tell you the whole story. He he went over a curb in Barcelona with a car, and uh, he split the chassis right down the corner of where the seat belts were. Um, and there was a red flag for some other reason, so he came to pit so had a look, and I decided that really it was it was a bit dangerous because the split was like you know. 30 centimetres long and it was right across where the seatbelt anchor is. Um, so I said to him "I had to take the spare car and he didn't want to go in the spare car and he wanted to go in that car and he turned around to me and he said, oh, he said if, if that was Roberto Moreno, now Roberto was a very good friend of mine, I said if it was Roberto Moreno was driving this car you'd fix it and uh, I got a bit upset with him because of this red flag he got out of the car so I pinned him against the wall and I just said, look, I'm doing this for you. I don't want you going out there and crashing the car, the chassis folding too, you hurting yourself, me getting the blame. We have a problem with the car. Get in a spare car and just drive it. <laughs> Sorted.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, called, uh, that's called diplomacy, what you're exercising. Now, we've got another question from uh, Rohit Subramanian, who says, is the cost gap enforced from 2021 or does it apply to 2021 development? And if it's if it's the former, aren't all the big teams going to pour more money in over the next year to get on top of the regs and leave the midfield teams where they are right now? Yeah, the cost cap applies to twenty twenty one spending, spending in the in the in the calendar year. And it there have been a lot of worries about teams spending excessively. There, there will be some extra expenditure, I imagine, particularly from the teams that have got the money to invest, but I suspect a lot more of it will be in some of the capital investments in the factory, that kind of thing. Just making sure you've got the things you need to do. Done that that don't have to go against your your balance, as it were, in in, in twenty twenty one. But inevitably, people will be cognizant of the uh, of the impending uh, the impending cost cap. But of course, for a lot of the teams, a cost cap is going to be too high to be especially uh, relevant as well. Especially when uh, when drivers are, uh, are involved. If you had a cost cap to get out, would you be would you be there ordering many many millions of tons of bolts and things just to have sat in your garage just in case?
2: Well, the problem is, you know probably half of the teams can only dream about a budget level of the, of what the cost cap is, including drivers and management and everything. You know, as far as I'm aware now, it's 175 million, plus the driver's fees, plus the top three personnel in the company, plus, plus, plus. So, you know, we hear Lewis Hamilton's asking for $60 million. I mean, that's, that's a third of the amount of money that the, the, the cost cap is. So that's ridiculous, you know, in reality. So... The, as I say, the, the money they're talking about is just way too high to offer any assistance to the smaller teams, or at least half of the teams on the grid. As for the others, you know, it's it's not been questioned and it's not been beaten, it's not been dragged up because they know themselves that the cost cap, as I say, plus the drivers, plus the top three management and whatever the commercial department, you know, if they add all that up, that is probably the budget they've got now. So there's no ch- the, budget, the the cost cap isn't. Forming any budget control whatsoever it's a start but I think there's ways around all that stuff and I think it's a, a dismal way of going about it to be honest because as I say the, the teams that need the money that need to spend the money just can only dream about that sort of level
1: yeah, it's it's one of those things that's going to be uh, it's going to take a few years to really see the the impacts, and obviously there is a, a desire for a bit of a glide path in terms of reducing the the spending. But I should mention the whole thing about spending glide paths. We've heard that before with the resource restriction agreement of uh, just over a decade ago. So th- this is a much more rigid, firm agreement. The financial regulations do actually exist uh, along with the sporting and technical regulations. So it's uh, yeah a bit more of a of a of a firm uh, deal. I should say quite a few questions we haven't got to, but quite a few of them. We have touched on in the the previous two editions of the podcast. There's some questions there about Sebastian Vettel and and Ferrari, which we covered in the the second uh, podcast, and ones about Red Bull's treatment of drivers, which we covered in our first one. So do have a look back if you want to hear some of those. Now, this is a stage in the podcast where sadly we have to hand over to Scott Mitchell for his uh, whimsical segment that is still titled scott's people i haven't quite quite completed sorting a jingle for it but i i haven't found anything suitably ludicrous yet but uh, but i 'm getting there so Scott the floor is yours
3: thank you very much now I like this just because as we've said before it's just a bit of light-hearted fun um, so we the first couple were basically just people sending in pictures and like really random places that spotted f1 drivers but I wanted to make it a little bit more um, a little bit more sort of whimsical this time so i last time i asked for people to throw in some um uh some some spot spotted uh animal mascots uh either f1 races or paddocks and stuff like that i was it just reminded me of when i was uh back when i was a kid and going karting and you'd have like half a dozen people with motorhomes or caravans around the paddock and they'd like a few of them would like bring their dogs and you just end up at some point with like a golden retriever running down and someone desperately trying to stop it from running onto the car track which would obviously be an absolute disaster in f1 race so unsurprisingly someone we had a uh we've got the obligatory someone spotted lewis hamilton's dog but i'm including it because it's quite a i just thought it was quite an amusing story it's from christian rose he said he's he was in the paddock at testing last year and He saw a huge scrum of cameras and people heading towards, uh, uh, heading down the paddock. He thought it was he thought it was like Hamilton or Vettel or someone. So he went over to see who it was. It turned out to be Roscoe being walked by a security guard. <laughs> Actually, I thought that was fantastic. At Motorcar Diaries sent in a picture of a bald eagle flying above Daytona and what he calls quote the famous Minardi dog, which I've never heard of. And I've asked a couple of people now who have not heard of this. But it's basically, it's a picture of of someone wearing a Minardi jacket holding a very small dog. Um, They're about to watch an Italian Formula 3 race back in 2009. But if anyone's ever heard of the famous Minardi dog, I'd love to actually know what particularly makes it famous. It's probably just an owner that's got like a retro Minardi jacket and just turned up to racetracks with with, with their pet. Um, Our MotoGP correspondent, Simon Patterson, sent in a few pictures, which properly bought into the idea and it just triggered a good bit of fun because he sent in a photo of MotoGP rider Jack Miller with his dog. Uh, he's got a bulldog that he took to he took to the Czech Republic last year, that Aussie, Aussie MotoGP rider Jack Miller and also a photo of a goose and a duck at Valentino Rossi's riding ranch. Absolutely random. But what was quite surprising is that opened up a really rich vein of MotoGP related animals because he shared a photo of a, of a stray cat interrupting cal crutchlow's media session um and ed you'll remember former motor reporter mitchell adam absolutely loves it when a cat interrupts stuff because at f1 testing a few years ago there was a stray cat that kept running down the pit lane which he got really excited about. That was an Abu
1: Dhabi, yeah, when I we was seeing that cat, I was out there. And
3: yeah, I think there's, there's, they, they, they crop up, stray animals crop up all the time. But Mitchell shared a photo of what was supposedly the same cat from a different Crutchlow media session that weekend. And he named it Cat Crutchlow, which I thought was just absolutely abysmal. Um, but the absolute peak of this was the, the, the conclusion of this conversation led to someone, uh, Josie, who got involved. And it turns out she's got a blog Uh, a a blog called The Mutts of MotoGP, where she basically just documents MotoGP riders and their pets. Uh, So Maverick Vinales has got a chocolate Labrador, and there's a video of Paul Aspargro racing his husky down a road. Aspargro's on a scooter, and this massively fluffy husky is just giving it the absolute beans chasing after him. So all of that stuff's very, very endearing. Uh, Gary, I'm led to believe that you've, uh, you've got a dog. Have you ever taken your dog to a racetrack?
2: No, I haven't taken my dog. I've got a Cairn Terrier. Um, well, my dog. It's uh, my grandkid's dog and my wife's dog and my dog. Um, I've got a Cairn Terrier. Yeah, lovely little animal, but no. Um, I, I'd like to bring this little episode to a bit of a sad end, really, if it's all right with you. Again, it was testing. It was in Argentina and the in the late 70s, I think it was. and
1: I should warn everyone, all of Gary's most ridiculous stories come from Argentina.
2: Well, there's a few from here and there, but Argentina, yeah. And uh, we were running around the track, you know, merely um, testing away, and the red flag um, was put up at the end of the pit lane, so everybody drove into the pits. There was this huge dog run across the pit straight. The next thing is there was this gun ringing out, the noise of a bullet going off. Green flag went at the end of the pit lane, and off we went for uh, testing. So... Um, Yes, that was a bit of a sad dog story, but it was, you know, dogs and racing cars. To be honest, on the track, obviously they don't mix, or motorbikes or anything like that. But uh, they need to be kept under control if you are taking to the racetrack. So that's why I would never take mine.
3: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. South America is uh, it's that it's very common for there to be a sort of a, a lot of stray animals, stray dogs around. Was in, it, in particular.
1: Was that kind of military rule era Argentina? Uh,
2: yes, I think it was 78, probably. Are, are you
1: the... absolutely certain it was the dog that the gun was being well, shot at?
2: Well, the dog didn't reappear and there was a bullet went off, so it could have been anything to be honest. Actually, it's quite many, strange. I, I imagine many people didn't reappear. They were standing on the roof of the garages the military with the guns out. There was one on every every roof all the way along the pit lane, so it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a testing time, I think. But, you know, we got we there. Can, we we can, risked.
3: Uh, we can get... Uh, End, end, end on a bit of a bit, bit more of a high. I'll throw out the question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw out the question that I want to ask for the way I want to ask for for the next podcast that we do, and it's slightly inspired by the fact that you're on this podcast, Gary, because I'm pretty sure you would be part of Ed's answer to this. So I, I'm curious because I, I always Is this like, about troublesome um, colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> I always like the sort of hypothetical scenario. You know when people are asked to put together like their dream dinner party. So who would you have as your guests? So I'm going to ask our listeners and readers on on social media, I'm going to ask if they could invite three F1 people, any era from when the World Championship started in in 1950, if you could invite three F1 people to your dream dinner, who would it be and why? So, I, And I picked that because I'm pretty sure, Gary, you'd be on Ed's list.
1: Anyone, who can, right tell Ed? story, anyone who can tell stories about the Jordan 191. Exactly. That's what you need. Although you also need some people. I think you need some... Uh, you need some aggravation, so you'd have, to, you'd have to get some people who don't get on. I, I'm sure I we can find a few people you don't oh get yeah. on. No, no, there's a few
3: around. <laughs> I think you'd have Gary, someone you could pitch him against, and you'd have an Eifeland driver as well, wouldn't you? Yeah, Just i get so Rolf, uh, Rolf Stommerlund.
2: <laughs> you can tell Rolf Stommerlund because his, his eyes were quite far apart to, what, to see past that, the, that rear view that mirror he had.
1: Yeah, that was, that was a, uh, Eifeland, one of
3: my, my favourite cars. Great
1: to see it's it's there and uh, there's a there's a restored the the restored car's been restored and it's running which is great absolutely brilliant.
3: See this is the point of this part of the podcast. It's just where the podcast descends into the realm of being ridiculous. Yeah, that's why we give this segment to you
1: because you do bring the 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 ridiculousness. Well, I think we've gone on for quite long enough now. Uh, We obviously will be hearing from Gary on the podcast every now and again, but there will also be. A Gary Anderson F1 Show podcast coming soon. Of course, we'll have plenty of podcasts coming on. Normally, this this podcast comes out once a week, but once we get into the launches, we'll try and do uh, a, a quick short podcast on on each and every launch to talk about the car with various uh, various people cropping up on that. And then once we get to testing, we'll uh, we'll be bringing some daily reports and analysis on on what's been going on. We'll all be out at that uh, both tests. Of course, it's just six days of. Pre-season testing this year, which is going to be, uh, yeah, fascinating to see how people are going. And of course, follow us on social media on at We Are The Race. And so, if you've got any questions, please do fling it at that. We try and get to as many as we uh, as we possibly can. Uh, well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell and, and Gary Anderson. Uh, I suspect the next time we'll uh, we'll, all be together, we'll be together will be for uh, for testing, or poss- probably not a launch, but but certainly the uh, the first test. So there'll be lots to talk about there. So yeah, we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back shortly, probably with the first of our launch podcasts.